0: Thinking about this book I read several years ago, a book that was written by a guy by the name of Mike Yankowski. The book's called Under the Overpass. I think we've got a, a picture of the book here. This is a unique book uh, written by a kid who uh, was a college-age student. He was upper-middle class, is how he grew up, uh, kind of a wealthy background. wasn't you know didn't struggle growing up. Uh, was going to a, a very nice college, uh, expensive private college called Westmont down in California and kind of his lifetime, and, and he's kind of looking around and saying, man, I'm, I find I sometimes don't struggle with the people around me. So uh, what Mike decided to do is he decided to take a step of faith and take a, a giant risk. And so what Mike did is he decided to take a leave from school, and he took a, a couple semesters off, and for six months, him and his friend decided to live on the streets, to live as a homeless person. Six months. No, calling mom and dad for help. No, staying in a hotel. I mean, he lived for six months on the streets in six different cities to to provide for himself. He panhandled. Um, he he ate trash. He ate out of the trash cans. There was times that he slept under the bridge. And uh, this is what he chose to do. And at the end of that six months, he decided to write a book, and that becomes this book under the overpass. And the question you begin to think is, why would this kid who has everything going for him? Why would he take six months of his life and be homeless? Why would he choose that life? The reason he would say, the reason I did this is, is number one, I wanted, to, I wanted to understand what poverty looked like. He lived in a society and in a culture where he had everything he needed. He was generally well-to-do. His family was well-to-do. He was going to college. He had all these things for his future. And he wanted to, number one, understand what poverty was like. If you want to understand what poverty is like, I don't think you have to take that step of faith. But that's where he was. The second reason he wanted to do this is he wanted to observe how Christians would interact with a despised corner of our society. He wanted to see how the church responds to somebody sitting on the street corner who hasn't the cleanest life. What I find fascinating is is as he spent that six months living as a homeless person, he said there's a lot of people that would come and walk by and throw a few quarters into his little jar. They, they'd give him a few dollars. And he said that one of the things I missed the most he said, I missed eye contact. Because people didn't want to make eye contact with him. In fact, he'd, 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 see, he'd be on the street, and he'd see somebody look ahead and see him divert their eyes and walk across the street to walk around him, where they didn't have to interact or acknowledge Mike on the street. And in fact, in what I find striking is over the period of six months of living as a homeless person on the street corner, there's only one Christian, The one Christian that entire six months that said, hey, what's your name? Come with me, I'd like to have a conversation with you. I'd like to come and 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 take you to eat and hear your story, hear what you're doing, how I can help you. Six months. One Christian reach out to him. Try to connect with him. Try to get to know him. Try to wade into a story. Try to encourage him with where he was in life. Now I'll be honest, I hear something like this, and a little bit I become a little bit offended. Like, like that wouldn't be me. Like, if I saw that guy in the street corner, I would not divert my eyes. I wouldn't walk on the other side of the road. If I saw that guy right there, I would take him out to lunch. I'd go to McDonald's with him and get a Big Mac and say, tell me your story. The problem is, most of us will say, well, we're too busy. We have too much going on. We've got other things we're supposed to do. We've got other priorities. And honestly, I think there's, there's probably two reasons, two things that that story exposes about us. Number one, it exposed that many of us have a bias. We have this, this unknowing bias inside of us where people that are different than us make us a little bit nervous. Am I right? I mean, isn't this why we have racism? Or maybe it's not, I don't like this other person, but somebody different than me just makes me a little bit nervous because I don't understand why they do what they do, how they operate. And so we have this bias. And, and, and this is where Restoration Church One of the visions we have for Restoration Church is that we would be a diverse group of faith, a diverse family of faith, that we would have people from all different walks, all different corners, all different colors, that we would come together and worship Jesus together. And you know what the key to that is? Is when you worship with somebody different than you, you've got to have conversations with them to understand. Get to know. And then that person that seems so unknown to you, they become a little bit more known. You realize, man, they're just a normal person, just like me. The second thing that story exposes is Christians. Listen, one of our purposes is we are to represent Christ to the world around us. We are to represent Christ to the world around us. This is clear in in Acts chapter 1 before Jesus returns to heaven. He says, you are my witnesses. We are his witnesses in the world. This is what we're supposed to do. And I hear that story and I think, how many countless Christians miss an opportunity to love somebody in need? Matthew chapter 5, we started this series last week. The greatest sermon ever told, the Sermon on the Mount. And last week we looked at uh, something that is called the beatitudes. You might call these beautiful attitudes. I heard someone call it this week. These beatitudes—they describe the the inner character of those who are members of the kingdom of God. Where you're not a member, you're not a Christian. You don't belong to the family of God just because you go to church. You don't be a Christian because you're a good person. In fact, Jesus said, "If if you are truly a a, a, a Christian." a member of the family of God, your life will have these characteristics. We talked about poor in spirit mourning over our brokenness. We talked about uh, being um, hunger and thirsting for righteousness, having having, uh, compassion for people around you, being pure in heart. I mean, these are the things that should define our lives as Christians. We said the kingdom of God is not about doing. It's not about doing a bunch of things. It's not about keeping all the religious rules. The kingdom of God is about being, being a type of person. And the temptation, though, is when you hear a message like that, when you hear about the kingdom of God is about being and not doing, the temptation is, uh, well, if, if it's only about being, then the Beatitudes are inner qualities, so I can isolate myself from the people around me. I mean, if it's only about my being a type of person, then the easy thing for me to do is to say, well, it'd be easy for me to isolate myself where I can focus on those qualities and I don't have to interact with people or, or things that might distract me from, from accomplishing that. I mean, the world is full of distractions. There are things that make us uncomfortable. There are people that live differently than I do. There are things that will distract me from the things of God. So, what I should do is just cut all those things out of my life and just focus on me. But we need to understand that when we look at those Beatitudes, you and I, we, we can't live the Beatitudes in private. The Beatitudes cannot be limited to being in the private. They have to be public. Uh, The Beatitudes in a public life, they go hand in hand. They're like peanut butter and jelly. You can't separate them. They're like mac and cheese. They're like fish and chips. They just go together. And so here, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, We've seen, we've seen that Jesus has already told the people about what it looks like to belong to the kingdom of God. He said, these are the Beatitudes. These are the characteristics that should define your life. And now Jesus is going to give us two brilliant metaphors that tell us if we're going to live these Beatitudes, here's how we are to interact with the world around us. You understand that? Jesus has said, listen, this is what your life should look like. And this is the characteristics that should define your life. And now that you understand that, now here's how you are to interact with the world around you. And I think as you look at these metaphors, you're going to recognize that both of these metaphors represent things that have a radical influence on anybody they come in contact with. Both of them have a radical influence on whoever they come in contact with. So here's our main idea for today. I want you to understand this. You can write this down a genuine Christian life has a radical influence on the world around them. If we're going to be and live the Beatitudes, then that is, a, that is a genuine Christian life, and that has a radical influence on the people around us. And I'll tell you why I think this message is so relevant for us today. Today we're going to have our annual celebration. This is a great opportunity for us to gather as a church family and be able to look back at what God has done in 2017 as well as look forward to where God is, is taking us in 2018. And one of the things I've been thinking about lately, I think I've had a couple conversations with a few of you. Listen, the church, we have the most important message in the world. Like, do you understand that? Like, we have the most important message of the world about salvation through Jesus Christ. This is a message that I believe to be completely life-changing. And not only do I believe this message should be life-changing, I believe this message is eternity-changing. Does anybody else agree with that? We have a message that is that powerful. Yet how often do we approach church and we approach the things of God with a casual attitude? Like if we truly believe that this message is life-changing and eternity-changing, then why don't we do anything we can to get people into a place where they're going to hear that message? Listen, if we believed the power of, of our message of Christianity, of the Bible, of faith in God, then we should be the most passionate that this message would be the most important thing that we could do. And we would do whatever we could to bring people where they're going to hear that message so they can respond. to. I think that fits exactly this idea. But you and I living a genuine Christian life that has a radical influence on people around us. Matthew chapter 5. And before we read, I'm going to just ask you to pray with me. God, I just want to come before you today and thank you for who you are. Thank you for the opportunity to be gathered with the church today. And Lord, I pray that you would challenge us, that you would stretch us. That God, when we walk out of here today, that we would understand what it means for us to be salt of the earth and light of the world. That God, you would encourage us and challenge us to be your witnesses and to take this message that is life-changing and eternity changing, and to be serious about it to the people around us. God, I pray that you transform our hearts today. You meet us with wherever we are, Jesus. We love you. And we praise you and we ask this in your name. But Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 16, uh, how we are supposed to relate to the world around us. And this is what he says in verse 13. Jesus says, you are salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus, again talking to the disciples that were there that day, that you are the salt of the earth. And I wonder, like, why does Jesus use salt as a metaphor? Like, how does salt relate to us? What is that What is that supposed to mean? And so I thought as we look at this idea about what does salt represent, I thought, well, let's just look at what is salt, salt used for? Like, what are the purposes? What are the functions for salt? In fact, if, probably the, the number one function for salt in the ancient world was that salt was a preservative. This was a day and age where you didn't have a fridge. You didn't have a Yeti cooler to fill with ice for your fish and your meat and whatever to stay stay fresh for a long time. And what would happen is, without having a fridge, decay begins to set in and your food begins to rot. And so back in that day, you would take salt, and the only way that you could preserve that meat was to uh, salt it down or put it in a saline solution, and that would give your meat a, a longer time, or things that would uh, that would rot and decay would give them a longer time to... Stay fresh and stay good for you. I think the underlying idea of this salt of the earth is a preservative that stops things from rotting. I think the underlying implication that Jesus is saying is, is our world tends towards decomposition. Our world tends to decay, right? Understand we can understand this morally and theologically. The world around us is decaying. It is rotting, it is falling apart. We think about the very beginning, the Garden of Eden. We have this perfect place. And what happened was sin entered the world, and what happened? Decay came. Hardship came. Things began to rot. Death came. And so we have this understanding that the world around us is is beginning to fall apart. It's been falling apart for a long time now. And this is what's happening around us. In fact, I was listening to a podcast this week. And this, this atheist was discussing faith, and he said something he, he said something I thought was interesting. He said, "You know what? My human nature doesn't want to be conformed to any religious rules. My human nature wants to do whatever it wants to do." He says, "My human nature doesn't want me to be married to one person. It wants me to have as many partners as I could get my hands on as I could get to say yes to." He said, "My human nature wants to eat." and drink, and smoke, whatever I want to do. Now, can anybody say that's the truth? Like our human nature, isn't it war against our souls? Like our human nature wants us to do things that we know are not very good for us. This is where the book of Proverbs says, our heart is desperately wicked. Listen, our our human nature does want to go and do all sorts of, of, of dumb things. And this is where, as Christians, that we can become salt and we become a preservative. Because when we have our values, when we live our morals, you recognize that it shows the people around us, hey, there's a better way to live. Instead of being a person that just follows our human nature to lead us to all the stupid things that humans do, come on, let's be honest. How many of us have done those stupid things? Because our human nature leads us that way. I have. I'm the first one to raise my hand. I know it. And so when we live our morals out, when we live with integrity that speaks to the world around us that there is a better way to live, a healthier way to live. This is why Christianity has a positive influence on any community that Christianity has found. You find a community that has a strong Christian influence, you will find a community with a reduced crime rate. With, uh, that restrains ethical corruption, that promotes honesty, that evaluates a, a, a general moral atmosphere. In fact, when you look at the spread of Christianity, one of the things that you will see with the spread of Christianity is as Christianity spread, so did women's rights improve. As Christianity has gone out, women's rights have improved. Places that Christianity has gone, women have been uh, uh, given the opportunity to learn how to read. Women have been extended their God-given value because Christianity says all people have created in the image of God. This is how Christianity helps to uh, prevent the decay around us. We become a preservative. In fact, this idea about making society be- better is a characteristic of salt. Because what happens is, is, is what happens when you put salt on, on, on a certain type of food is that salt begins to enhance the flavor, right? I mean, can anybody imagine French fries without salt on them? That's just disgusting. Like, if you order French fries without salt, I'm praying for you. Listen, Dr. Edgely, Dr. Ben, look, I, I know it creates high blood pressure in me, but I'm not going to apologize for my salt on my French fries, right? You know the worst, the worst order of French fries? It's the first order of the day. You want to know why? Because that, that bin that they put the, the, the fries in doesn't have that all the extra salt. You get extra salt on your fries. It's just the truth. It's just the truth. Think about how many foods you and I eat that would be completely bland without salt. Because what does salt do? Salt enhances the flavor. It brings out the additional flavor. And this is the idea that Christians, as salt, we're supposed to enhance the flavor. That we ought to, to work the hardest. That we ought to be the most courteous. That we ought to be the best musicians and craftsmen and student. we, students. We ought to enhance the world around us to make it better. As a witness of our relationship to God and, and us living out our faith. There's one more function of, the, of salt that actually is probably the most important function of salt. Is salt will create a thirst right? Salt creates a thirst. That's why you go to um, specific establishments that I'm not going to mention from the Pulpit, and they give you peanuts and, and, and nuts. Why do they do that? Makes you thirsty. That's why you, you go to the movie theater, and they charge you $5 for a 30-gallon garbage can of, of popcorn. Why do they do that? So that they can sell you an $8, $8 versus 6 ounces of pop, right? So then they can make all the money on you drinking all the pop to to wash all that salty popcorn down. Isn't that how it works, right? Jesus lived his life in such a way that he was like salt. He made people thirst for God. When you look at the life of Jesus, whenever he encountered somebody, maybe it was somebody who was seeking to know the truth like Nicodemus, maybe it was someone who was a social outcast because of the life they lived like the woman at the well. You look at the people that Jesus interacted with, and those people had a thirst for God. They became thirsty for God because of their interaction with Jesus. That's the type of influence that you and I are to have on the people around us. And listen, I want us to understand, like, we don't have to learn how to be salty. It's not like, well, well, how do I become salt? No, Jesus has already told us how we be salt. He said you live the Beatitudes. You allow these things in word and deed to be characteristics that your life is built on. When you become poor in spirit, you you, you recognize your brokenness. You're not holier than thou, but you recognize your need for Christ. When you are merciful to the people around you, when you are a peacemaker, not a a potster, when you live that kind of life, you become salt to the people around you essence, what he's saying is, is when you are salt, that you give people a taste or a glimpse of Jesus. That's what it means for us to live as salt of the earth, is to give people a taste and a glimpse of who Jesus is. Think about how I could tell you that, what that looks like. I was thinking, one of the things my wife and I love to do is, is, is you get the tomatoes, and I'd love to say I'm going to grow tomatoes in my garden, and every year I start. And then I lose time, and so they, they end up falling apart. It just My time just happens like that. But I love taking a tomato. Uh, I'm there. You cut it in half, and you put a little salt on it, right? Now, listen, anytime I've had one of those salted tomatoes, slice of tomato, I've never ate that and said, man, that salt was good. That's good salt right there. No. The common is, man, that's a good tomato. That's a good tomato. People, this is what, what it looks like when we live this, this when we salted life, when we live the beatitude. People are left wondering, man, what's different about this person? What makes them tick? What makes them so unique? And that's where we point the attention, not to the salt, but to, to God Himself.
1: This is what makes me tick. This is what
0: makes me unique. The second metaphor, verse 14, Jesus says, You are light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put light uh, or light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. Second analogy that Jesus is saying, is first he says, you are salt of the earth, and now he says, you are light of the world. And again, i got to ask this question, well, why does he say light of the world? What does that mean? Again, what are the functions of light? A couple ideas. Uh, light exposes the truth. Yeah, I heard about this years ago when electricity was becoming common in houses. Okay? The men were like, man, yeah, we get electricity. We can have lights on all day long. This is great. You know what the women were starting to fear? No, we don't want that electricity. We don't want lights in our house. You want to know why? Because light showed all the dirt in the house. This is true. You go back in time and you could read about it. They didn't want the light on because it would show. Man, this place is dirty. There's there's dust. There's all sorts of things. Light exposes the truth. It brings it out into the light. Another thing that light does is is light comforts us. Light light relieves our fear. Right? Don't don't laugh at me. Okay, but I'm gonna tell a little bit of a story. All right, a little story that tells us. My wife and I we've been building a house. Our family's been building a house for the last year or so, and. And our house is on this apple orchard. There's, there's 16 acres of apple orchards around us, and there's no street light, So it's really dark. You, you walk out of the house at night, and you're like, this place is dark. Just naturally the way it works. And, and our house that we're building is a couple hundred feet from where the house that we're living, all right? So here's the story. I'm working late one night. I'm working really late. And so I get done, and it's like 1 in the morning, okay? All the lights are turned off. I start walking to their house. I take four or five steps, and all of a sudden, The the hairs on the back of your neck start sticking up. And I'm like, we we had coyote problems. And I'm like, there's got to be a coyote watching me. Oh, did you hear that? There's got to be some strange person, okay? I take four or five steps until I break into just a sprint as fast as I can, okay? I'm sprinting as fast as I can. And I get like a quarter of the way there, and I pull a hamstring. And I'm like, ah, this is horrible. And I've got all this distance, and something's behind me. I know something's behind in me. And there's a shop up here, and the shop has one of those motion sensors. So I'm jumping for the shop, and I'm trying to, I'm jumping, trying to get the light to go off. Because, again, if that light comes on, I can see what's around me, I can see what's behind me. And you now it's just the wind blowing some leaves. And I'm probably looking like I'm a fool, but anybody really watching me. What's that guy doing? That's what light does. We want to go into the light because it comforts us, it, it, it uh, exposes our fear. Of. You can trust. whatever else. You know what else light does? Another function for light is light attracts. This is where in Yakima you see that big light, the big spotlight that they shine up in the sky every so often. And you know, hey, when you see that light, it's like the bat signal. There's something going on. You've got to go and find where that light is. And, and there's a big event, a big party and you want to go find out where it is. Those are the functions of light. And what and what Jesus is saying is that we are to live a life that uh, illuminates God for the people around us. You could say that as as a light of the world, Christians shine the light of God's love into dark places. He says that we live as lights of the world, that we shine the light of His love into dark places all around us. And again, you don't have to learn how to be, uh, how to do light of the world. All we have to do is live those beatitudes, and that's how we be the light of the world. You know, I know some of us are probably sitting in our seats and thinking, man, I'd love to be a light. Like, how do I, how do I be a better light? How do I grow brighter? How do I, yeah, i was thinking about this. Uh, a couple, a couple of years ago, my son uh, got those pajamas, you know those pajamas that glow in the dark? You put these pajamas on and there's like a you know, a Batman on there and it's supposed to glow in the dark. And so the first night he had these pajamas, we, we put his pajamas on right before bed and, and we go on. I tuck them in. I turn the light out and they're like not glowing. And I'm like, man, these things are broken. Like how do you open new pajamas and they're already broken? And then I look at the package. The package said, if you want me to shine at night, you've got to leave me in the light. So the next night we put his pajamas on hour before bed, and he's out in the light. When we go and tuck him up into bed, we turn the lights out, and those pajamas are shining bright as bright as can be. Listen, it's the same way with us. John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And when you and I, when we expose ourselves to Jesus, when we become serious about his word, when we spend time in prayer, it's kind of like we're we're soaking up his rays to then be able to reflect his light. In fact, the way I heard it described this week is they said, uh, God, Jesus, they're like the sun, and the church, his people, we're like the moon. We are reflecting his light to the world around us. That's what we're supposed to do as the church. In fact, this is why the church, oftentimes I've heard it said like this, the church, we gather and we scatter the church does. We gather together on Sunday mornings. We gather together midweek during life groups. We gather together in youth group. You know why we gather? To soak up the sun. To soak up his word. To soak up the truth of who he is. But listen, we're not supposed to stay gathered. No, we are to then scatter into our world, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, into our schools and we go and we scatter reflecting the sun that we've received reflecting that light to the world around us. And we gather again to absorb that light, and then scatter again to reflect it again. And that's the way a Christian life is supposed to be. So here's here's what I'm thinking, though. Is I'm reading about this idea about being salt and light, and I'm thinking, well, what about the questions? Like, naturally, you hear this, and, and there's got to be some questions that come to your mind, because there's questions that come to my mind. But what about this, and what about that? So I'm going to answer a couple of those questions. First question is, well, uh, what what happens if you have too much, right? Can there be too much salt or too much light? That's a great question. I'm glad I thought of it. You know, in fact, uh, when I was younger, a little more immature, I'm much more mature than I am. I'm much more mature now than I was back in those days. But when I was younger, I'd go out to a restaurant with a friend, right? And they'd go to the bathroom, or they'd go do something, and you know what? I mean, you would never do this, and uh, you know, uh, but you take the salt shaker and you screw the lid off, and uh, then you set that salt—you set that lid right on top of the salt shaker, right? So then, when the food comes, and they go to put, okay, someone give me a laugh for that—that was so dumb. But I did that once or twice in my younger, more or less immature, less mature days. And so then, when you pour the salt, all the salt comes out. Listen, you put too much salt on a food, you can't eat it. It just becomes gross. In the same way, like if you take a, when you go camping with your kids, what do the kids want to do? They take the flashlight and start shining it all up in your eyes. You're like, ah, don't do that. I can't see. Don't, don't fl- shine the light in my eyes. And so, yes, there can be a thing where you can have too much salt or too light. In fact, there are some Christians that despite their good intentions, they inadvertently are repelling people. Instead of attracting people to Christ, right? you seen that person? For me, the obvious example is when you drive up tight and drive right around 12 and you see those people standing outside of Planned Parenthood with signs saying, "You're a murderer, what are you doing blah 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 you see him pick it. Yeah, I think that there'd be a better way for us to go about reaching people than holding up a sign saying things like that. I think the easier way for us to, to love people, to, to be salt and light, is to go and wade into those people's stories. Say, let me walk through life with you. Let me, let me hear your story. Let me figure out how I can and help you navigate the world that you're entering and, and the decisions you have in front of you. See, what, if, what if instead of holding that sign, what if we went and loved these people? For them and help them navigate their situations. Again, there can be a such thing as too much salt or too much light. Again, Jesus taught us how to be salt and light. He said, Listen, you want to be salt and light in the world around you, live the beatitudes. Be that type of person. That's how you be salt and light. Be poor in spirit. Mourn for your brokenness, hunger or thirst after God. Be merciful. Be pure in heart. Be a peacemaker. That's how we be salt and light in the world around us. Second question that I want to ask is: what happens? What happens if we fail to be salt and light? What happens if we don't be salt and light in the world around us? We kind of skipped over this. But Jesus has a very stark warning. If we fail to be salt and light. He said in verse 13, he said, You are salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He said, You are salt of the earth. Listen, it's not debate. He's saying, You are. As a Christian, you are salt of the earth. But if a salt loses its taste, now here's a little nerd alert. Maybe some of you don't care about this, but nerd alert. Like salt as a as, as a as a I don't know what is it a, a, a compound. Salt it it is a very stable chemical compound. It is nearly resistant to every kind of attack. There's not much you can do to ruin salt. As a compound, it is always going to be salt. But when Jesus says if salt loses its taste, the only way to make salt lose its taste is to have it diluted, to have it contaminated with something else. This is where you put uh, salt in water. The water begins to dilute it. It washes it away. In fact, in the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea is known for being a very salty body of water. right? And what happens is when that salt becomes uh, in solid form, that salt isn't pure salt. In fact, the dinner salt that you have on your dinner table is probably more pure than the salt that comes out of the Red Sea. Because in the Red Sea or the Dead Sea, all that stuff is mixed into it. And it's not a pure compound. So it's not pure salt. It's not as good as it should be. You want to, salt loses its flavor when it's mixed with other things and has other things mixed into it. And this is what Jesus is saying to us. As Christians, we are to be salt. You know how we lose our saltiness? By becoming diluted. By becoming contaminated. This is the great tragedy of Christianity. That too many Christians who are supposed to uh, influence the world allows the world to have a greater influence on them. This is the great tragedy. It's too often the world has a greater influence than we have on the world. We become diluted. We become contaminated. We're no longer focused on being salt, no longer focused on being light. Because now we've allowed the world to contaminate what we're supposed to be. Let me just ask you a few questions on this idea of contamination. In terms of materialism, in terms of your resources, is there any difference between how you use your resources and the rest of the world around you. Is there any difference in terms of materialism between you and the world around you? In terms of pleasure and happiness, the things you seek to gratify you. Is there any difference between how you seek to gratify your pleasure and the world around you? In terms of of compassion, is there any difference in the type of compassion you show to people? In the world around you, you need to ask yourselves those questions. If the answer for you is maybe there's not that big of a difference, listen. Jesus gives us a very stark warning. He says, "Salt that has lost its saltiness is good for nothing, except to be thrown out." I'm not going to try and tell you what it means for for that salt to be thrown out and trampled under his people other than I want it to be a warning to us, a very stark warning that we are to be pure salt, not contaminated with the world, but focused on what God has called us to do, and that is to influence the world around us and not to allow the world to influence us instead. I want to try and wrap this up. And I want to wrap this up by tying it into a statement we made at the very beginning about the purpose of the church of why the church exists. You see, before Jesus left the earth, remember, he gave his disciples a very specific purpose, a very very specific mission to the church, to us as believers. It wasn't to promote a specific political agenda. It wasn't to, to just come to church. It wasn't to follow a bunch of rules. No, when Jesus was getting ready to leave the earth, He connected to this idea about being salt and light. He said in Acts chapter 1, 8, he said, you will be my witnesses throughout the world. He said in in Matthew 28, he said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That is why we exist, is to be salt and light to the world around us and to spread the truth of Jesus Christ and of the gospel. In fact, there's an ancient ancient, uh, uh, ancient, uh, legend that was told by first by the Christians in Rome, okay? And here's, here's how the legend goes, that Jesus, he 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 goes back up to heaven, and he's met by the angel, maybe Gabriel, I don't know, one of the angels is up there. He meets Jesus and says, Jesus, go so good to have you, who would you leave back down on earth to carry on your work? And Jesus says, well, I left a couple of fishermen, I left uh, a couple of farmers, maybe a couple of housewives, you know, just some people down there. The angel sits there and says, really? You left like... Those are the people you left to carry on your work? But, like, what if they fail you, Jesus? Like, what if what if they lose heart? What if things get difficult and they drop out and they quit and they bail on carrying out your mission, Jesus? Like, Jesus, what's your plan B? And Jesus says, Listen, the church, those people are my only plan. And they won't fail. See, if you and I are genuine believers in Christ. We're believers in God. We are his messengers. We are God's plan A and his only plan to tell the world about the grace, the love, the forgiveness, to tell them about eternity in heaven being a reality and how to get there. And Jesus uses this salt and light metaphor because he wants us to understand salt and light have a radical difference on anybody they come in kind of contact with. And that is the way our life is supposed to be, that we have a radical difference on the people we come in contact with. We have a message that we are to share with the world around us. In fact, when I think about Jesus speaking to those disciples, he's speaking to us today says, you are salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And if Jesus was here today, he said those same things to every one of us. You, 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 every one of you are the light of the world. And I picture him looking at us and saying, you know what, I believe in you. I believe in every one of you, so much so that there is no plan B are my plan A. You are the light of the world. You can have a healing and a preserving influence on the world around you. You can make the world better by by living out your faith. You can live a life that makes people thirsty for the truth of God, to hunger after Him. You can love people in a way that, that the moral decay around you begins to slow down and get better. You can live the kind of life that shows that following Jesus enhances life and doesn't detract away from it. Every one of us, you can live a life that says you need to come and see how wonderful God is. This is his message to us today. That we can have this kind of impact on the world around us. As Jesus said, we are like a a city on a hill. We are strategically placed to shine his light to make the most impact. And the places that God has placed you, understand he has placed you very specifically. That you are to shine in the family in which you're placed. The extended family that drives you crazy. The in-laws that drive you crazy. Listen, you've been placed there to shine a light. That school that you can't stand, those kids that drive you crazy, those parents, you've been placed in that circle of influence to shine a light. That workplace that you're in, the boss that you can't stand, the coworker who clips his nails during the office time and all you hear is clip, clip, clip. You've been placed in that place to be a light and a witness to them. That neighborhood that you're in, the neighbor next door who never mows his yard and has things grown over, you've been placed there to be a witness to them, to to shed the light of God, to be salt of the earth. And in those situations that become dark and less promising, listen, the great news is light has the greatest effect in the darkness those dark places of your life, those dark corners that God has placed you, that's where light often has the greatest effect. Is in those dark places. Wherever God has placed you, you are placed there to to brighten the little corner of the world where God has you. So I'm going to just close and just say, thank you, Restoration Church. Thank you, every one of you, for being salt and light for being a part of what God is accomplishing right here at Restoration Church. And it's my prayer for every one of us that we would continue to embrace this idea of being salt and light in the places that God has strategically placed us, in our city, in our neighborhoods, downtown at Restoration Church, in your workplace, in your school, that you would embrace what Jesus just said about you. That you are the light of the world to those people.